Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Tory mutineers and what kind of Brexit deal the city of London is looking for. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, city editor, Jonathan Ford, Whitehall editor, James Blitz, and political commentator, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. The EU withdrawal bill arrived in the House of Commons this week and MPs debated about whether there should be a hard deadline in law on the UK's exit from the bloc. A dozen or so MPs rebelled against the idea were labelled the Brexit mutineers on the front page of a national newspaper. At the same time, Ireland raised the prospect of vetoing the move to the second phase negotiations in December, while the UK was warned that it can't expect to have a la carte access to the single market after it leaves. George Parker, let's go to the House of Commons. What was going on there this week. The EU withdrawal bill went to the floor and there's lots of debate uh, and lots of amendments tabled. What happened? Well, this is the start of the detailed consideration of the withdrawal bill. It's the start of a marathon session of debates on the floor of the House between now and Christmas. And we had the opening skirmishes. And initially, we thought this was going to be a fairly dull week. In fact, they were going to save up the really big, difficult votes until the end of the process. But it was electrified by the fact that Theresa May, on the eve of these debates, quite out of the blue, announced that she was tabling an amendment to the bill, which was set in stone the moment, the precise moment when we left the EU. In case you're thinking about organising a party, it's a Friday evening, 11 o'clock, uh, 29th of March 2019. And that's really provoked outrage amongst many pro-European conservatives because you set this date in stone. It doesn't give you the flexibility you need at the end of the process in case the talks have dragged on. And David Davis himself has conceded that talks could go on to the very last minute. Now, if you're going to need legislation to enact the transition deal and the future trade agreement and Parliament has to vote on it, then it's plainly obvious you're going to need some flexibility on the date to give Parliament time to do that. So this was back to the uh, the language of the mob, Miranda, when these 12 pro-European conservatives were held up on the front page of the Daily Telegraph and called the Brexit mutineers, which, although it was probably meant to intimidate them somehow, it's actually worked the opposite way and bound them together and create a lot of positive feeling, including from some Brexiters like Michael Gove and Steve Baker, who said, you know, these are colleagues who have reasonable and fair objections and they should be allowed to voice them because that's what Parliament's about. It's about scrutiny of legislation, not just about railroading through bad ideas. Well, but it goes to the heart of the problem with the referendum, which is this idea of the will of the people in that vote trumping any other forms of us expressing our democracy. So, you know, you might say it's quite well and proper for MPs to, you know, consult their experience and indeed their conscience and indeed the views of their constituents and then come to a view on all these very complicated matters to do with Brexit that are coming through the House. But, you know, those newspapers that have championed leave don't see it like that. And they just think that that one day 
which was, after all, quite a narrow majority, 52 to 48%, trumps anything that, that follows it. You're quite right. There is a sort of feeling that being named as a gang in this way may have actually sort of hardened the resolve of the Conservative rebels to try and push the government the whole time on concessions. And we've already seen signs that they might actually be successful in doing that because, of course, the government only has a working majority because of cooperation with the DUP. They're very vulnerable to rebellions. And if sort of around 15 to 20 Tories start to kick off and demand that the government gives way on things, they can vote in alliance with with some of the opposition parties and force changes. But this is the key Hmm. thing, George, because Theresa May only has a working majority of about 12 at the moment. And you have enough MPs that cancels out her majority. And Labour obviously will do whatever it can to cause trouble on the Brexit matter. And what was interesting about this gang is that there were some very senior people there, the former Attorney General Dominic Grieve, former Cabinet Minister um, Nikki Morgan, Anna Subri, who's a perennial anti-Brexit um, voice in the debate at the moment. So it wasn't sort of your usual cranks or what have you, just like causing, these were substantial people. Um, but do you think they actually do want to stop Brexit, these people? Is this just, as the some Brexit voice would say, it's a way of trying to get around the referendum result and just make sure we don't have a fixed leave date and we never actually leave? Well, I think on your point about them being serious people was borne out by some of the social media commentary about that front page. They said this looks like prospective cabinet rather than a bunch of mutineers. Or um, Marks and Spencer's advert for well, insurance. Indeed. They're very nice. The quality of the pictures was extremely high. And as Miranda said, there's a danger now that they will. They feel they've got nothing else to lose. They're mutineers. They become a party within a party, just as the Maastricht rebels did back in the in the 1990s. Do they actually want to stop Brexit? They say, of course, they don't. I mean, Kenneth Clark probably be the exception to that. He's, he didn't vote for I the Article 50. I think Anna Subri as well. Yeah. Kenneth Clark was the only person who didn't vote for the Article 50 bill. They say they don't. There's no amendment to this bill at this stage which would stop Brexit. I think you have to be clear about that. And I think, frankly, removing this ridiculous date from the bill, which was only put on as a stunt by Theresa May. Incidentally, George Osborne's Evening Standard said it was designed to split the Conservative Party. I think it was done for a different reason. I think Theresa May is about to make some serious compromises ahead of the European Council in December, and she needed to throw a bone to the Eurosceptic right before this. She thought it'd be a fairly easy thing to do, but it's completely backfired. That's exactly how I read it too, Miranda, that it was trying to roll the pitch for coughing up another £20 billion or whatever it is to try and unlock that next stage of Brexit talks and to say to the right flank of her party, actually, we are still going to leave and it's going to happen on this date. So even if it sounds a bit hairy, we're still going to get to the same destination. Well, that this cuts to the heart of Theresa May's continuing role as Prime Minister, of course, because she's got to keep up this constant balancing act between appeasing the Brexit-friendly right wing of her own party and the compromisers on the other side, whilst trying to do a deal. This question about the money is obviously absolutely crucial because we can't unlock the second stage of the negotiations without it being clear that Britain is going to stump up. And whatever the details of that, May herself had a fairly good line around the time of her famously flopping Florence speech, which is to say, you know, we are Britain, we pay our way and we meet our commitments. Whether that will be enough to sell it to the Brexit wing of her own party, I don't know. I think she could, actually, though, Mm. because it seems reasonable. I totally agree with I think the Eurosceptics in her party are less concerned about the money issue and much more concerned about getting over the line and achieving Brexit. And you have people in the cabinet, including Michael Gove and Liam Fox, who've signalled that they're quite relaxed about more money being handed over. I was speaking to one prominent leaver who was saying it's money down the back of the sofa. And in fact, it is. This money we paid over a number of years. It's already in the Treasury's forecasts. And most people think the money's just going to have to be handed over, as Miranda said, to unlock the talks. So I think she will be able to achieve that at the summit. 
So this is from the UK perspective, but from the European perspective, things haven't looked entirely so smooth. We heard from the Irish Taoiseach um, Leo Vadkra this week, who actually said, until we get a firm, hard commitment that we're not going to have a hard border, then essentially we will actually block moving forward there. And you can imagine the EU26 are much more likely to do what one of their member states says than a country that is about to become a third nation. Yes, I think that's true. The thing to remember about Ireland is that Vadkra's in a fragile position at home first of all the second thing is Ireland knows very well this is their moment of maximum leverage in the talks they are they hold the whip hand there are three things being discussed in the first phase of talks Ireland's one of them once you get into the second phase Ireland's a small voice among 27 member states so this is the moment when they have to drive a hard bargain they want this in writing there won't be a hard border I think probably that's something that could be finesse one way or the other because the truth is until you get into the second phase in discussion about whether Britain what the relationship is between Britain and the customs union the end you state. can't you can't possibly decide what the border with Ireland looks like but you know I think it's one of the things that's slightly blindsided London just how hard Dublin is playing this I think it's also interesting from that DUP point of view as well, you know, because May is governing only with the cooperation of a Northern Irish party. And it's really not in the interest of the Northern Irish economy to have a hard border. So, again, I think there probably is some some Mm. room there. But it's very interesting that Varadkar is playing hardball with this just at the moment when David Davis and May are kind of touring Europe on a slightly odd charm offensive, trying to sort of move the, the conversation forward to the trade stage. There is one other sort of paradox about the DUP being in sort of semi-coalition with Theresa May, of course, which is one of the solutions the Irish government's proposed is the idea of having Northern Ireland within the customs union, whatever happens to the rest of the UK, which was effectively put the border down the middle of the Irish Sea. And that's totally unacceptable, of course, to unionists in Northern Ireland, the idea of passport checks or frontier controls at Port of Lan. It's very delicate in terms of Northern yeah. Irish, Irish peace as well. And not helped by the fact there is still no government in Stormont in Northern Ireland that talks between Sinn Féin and the DP have pretty much collapsed entirely. And partly because of that is the fact that they are, as you said, George, almost in coalition with Theresa May's Conservatives. Now, as you were, the other question, of course, is still this, the end state about where mm. Britain is going to head. And we've heard... Michelle Barnier and other people this week saying there are really only two clear options here, the Norway option and the Canada option. So you join the EA, you have to take up all the EU's laws and regulations, but you don't get any say in making them. But the economic model continues as it is. The City of London will continue to have access as it does. The other option is the Canada one, which is the one the more swashbuckling Brexiters like to talk about because you could make your own trade deals, make your own legislations, but you add a lot of friction with the EU from day one there. And there's still no sign for anything in Theresa May's government that she's willing to say which one it's going to be. No, that's true. I think she would prefer to have this debate pushed through into into 2018. The further you can kick the can down the road, the better, and to get over the hump of the December Council, first of all. But you're right, there's no agreement. And the problem is with the Canada-style deal, beloved of the Eurosceptics, is it focuses on goods, focuses on goods, and doesn't focus on services. Now, you're right, the, the EU makes a very binary distinction between two types of models, and it's fairly obvious that when they produce their guidelines, if they do, on a future trade deal, it will be very much along the lines of the... phase two. Yeah, in the phase two, it will be very much along the Canada model. Now, there are those in the UK who say, well, fine, that's what they're saying at the moment, but they were going to have to budge. The City of London is an interesting case in point that we need access to the European market, obviously, but people would argue that actually... European car manufacturers, farmers, insurance companies, whatever, need access to the deep pools of liquidity in the city of London. And therefore, there'll have to be some kind of modus operandum between the EU, the Eurozone and the city of London to make things work for both sides. 
But that's the, the negotiation. And the negotiation is going to be really concertinaed into nine months, which is a ridiculously short period of time, given the normal glacial pace of EU negotiations. And hugely hampered by this idea that Britain doesn't really know what it's trying to achieve. Mm. You know, you had European business leaders visiting London this week and coming out of the meeting from in Downing Street saying, really, the onus is on the UK to say what it wants. And as Varadkar, you know, who made the intervention about the hard Irish border, he also said this week that, in fact, it's extraordinary to think that this is a 10-year campaign from people in the UK who wanted to leave the EU, and 18 months after a referendum, we still don't really know what it was they were trying to achieve. But David Davis went to Berlin, George, to try and get German businesses to ramp up the pressure on, on the German government to try and push forward to a bit more flexibility. He had this very curious line that's raised the interest of people, went down like a Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. according to someone who was in the room, which was saying that you should put prosperity over politics which of course many people looked back at David Davis and thought well hang on a minute isn't that exactly what you're doing and it seems well right back to this stage we were years ago where the UK doesn't seem to understand what the EU wants and the EU doesn't seem to understand what the UK wants either. Yeah I think that's true and I think there's a yeah it's been a misconception all the way down the line from the Brexiteers that in the end Prosecco manufacturers and BMW will prevail on their governments to do a deal. The truth is there probably will be at the end of the day a free trade agreement which covers goods because the EU runs a massive surplus in goods with the UK. Supply chains in particular. Including including BMW cars and Prosecco. And what they don't want to do is offer us a a trade deal on services where we have a massive trade surplus. That's, you know, when it comes down to it, that's the kind of deal and the kind of calculation they will be making. And in the end, of course, there is a political dimension to all of this. I think I've given this example before, but when the EU was discussing putting sanctions on Russia, there was an intense lobbying operation by BMW against um, Merkel's government saying, don't do it, we sell lots of BMWs in Russia. And the sanctions went ahead anyway, because they're sometimes bigger things than commercial realities. I think it's important to also remember that David Davis has signalled that he's only going to carry out this job as Brexit negotiator and then he's leaving the stage. So there's this kind of interesting idea about who is going to take the political hit for any compromises that have to be sold back to the British people and indeed sold back to the House of Commons. And, you know, clearly from the rest of the Cabinet's point of view and probably from May's point of view, they will hope that Davis, who's already been sort of knocked about for his speech in Berlin this week, will have to be the one to make these compromises. But it's very dangerous dangerous for the government because this argument will not go away if they have to stick to some sort of arrangement where we are rule takers from the EU that will not satisfy a large chunk of hardline Brexiters. That's a very interesting point about Mr Davis because when he came in, he was one of the more bullish ones about Brexit, saying that you know it's all going to be far more broker, the fastest, quickest, bestest trade deal known to mankind. And yet he's now actually become one of the more practical voices, George. That you know he's the one who's advocating transition, happy to hand across money at least at least in in several different parts here. And as Miranda said, you could imagine him; he will go off after 2019, and it will be up to someone else to try and figure out this free trade deal. Well, I suppose the person picking up the pieces in 2019 will be Theresa May, who's a convenient human shield to be disposed of soon after <laughs> Brexit's taken effect. But you're right, David has been proved himself to be more pragmatic. He's formed a, an interesting alliance with Philip Hammond, who sees very clearly the economic considerations of Brexit. And we talk about concessions. What we're really talking about is every step along the way, when there's been a crunch point, Britain's hauled up the white flag. You know, whether it's the sequencing of the talks, which was supposed to be the big row of the autumn, we gave in on that. Whether it was the role of the ECJ, we gave in on that. Um, transition on the EU's terms, yep, we're signing up to that. And money, yep, 50 billion euros is on the way, I'm pretty convinced. So every way down the line, David Davis does a great job of sort of doing the breezy, confident, optimistic thing. But in the end, he's quite realistic. And in the end, he knows we have very few cards at our disposal.
While the withdrawal bill has been trundling through the House of Commons, the uncertainty of what Brexit means for the City of London has been growing and whether it's receiving due attention from the May government. David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, tried to reassure some senior bankers this week and raise the possibility of a special immigration arrangement after the UK leaves the bloc. But until the May government decides what kind of deal it wants to broker with the EU, can the city really make adequate preparations? Jonathan Ford, um, do you think the UK government really is taking into account the city's special interests. Obviously, one of the great national assets, about 7% of GDP and all the rest of it, but obviously it's not really that enthusiastic about the process of Brexit. No, I think the city is very unenthusiastic about the process of Brexit, and particularly... If you like, the very large institutions, a lot of them foreign-owned, who are going to have to navigate these changes as they come down the path over the next few years. I think if you ask yourself why the government, if you like, left the city to one side while it's dealt with some of the other political problems of Brexit, there's quite a good illustration of why this might have been when you look at the reaction to David Davis's reassuring comments to the city bankers this week, which was immediately the reaction in the newspapers or some newspapers was to say, well, that's typical, isn't it? You know, the government essentially is going to basically do a special deal for its friends in the city. And I think this is one of the problems the government has in touching the sector. And I think one of the reasons why it's been slightly wary about, about going there until, until now. Well, this is the populist mood that we're at, it, mm. where, it, where we find ourselves at the moment. And I'm sure all the people who voted to leave the EU probably couldn't really care much or less what happens to the city of London. And mm. the May government is focused on keeping those people happy. Yes, I think that's right. I think the government's view is that, I think, well, the government's view, I think, has been, whether this is now changing is a good question. I think the government's view has been that the city, a bit like a lot of the rest of industry, the problem it faces is one of costs. There are going to be costs associated with the transformation that goes ahead when we leave the European Union. And essentially, the, the question for the government is how to manage that by a series of initiatives to basically try and buy off some of the worst aspects that people complain about and, and hopefully make adjustments to things which will encourage people to invest more and do more things in the UK. I think with the city, there's a particular problem there, which the way I would put it is this. And this is, I think, one of the issues that's particularly breaking at the moment and means that the government is having to start talking to them a bit more. And that is that whereas most of industry, if you think about a car plant in the UK, you've put down your investment you, your costs may go up when we leave, but effectively you're not going to demolish a mini-making factory in Oxford and rebuild it in Slovakia. You might rethink your investment plans in future, but you're stuck with what you're, it's a sunk cost. In the city, there's a much more existential issue, I think, with certain firms, and you see this in the tweets of the somewhat ubiquitous tweets now of Lloyd Bankfine. I think he's done 26 in total of which now <laughs> about, you're about, about a third are now on Brexit. I think the city's issue is this. If we lose our license to operate, it's not just a question of the car plant becoming redundant. It's basically that we cannot continue to do some or all of the business that we do from London. So James Blitz, this really feeds into the wider discussion about what kind of Brexit model we're going to follow. And there's two broad streams, the Norway one and the Canada one. And the May government sort of, again, refuses to acknowledge this. We hear Theresa May saying um, there, we don't need to be bespoke. There'll be a British option. David Davis, the Brexit secretary, has said this too. But until we really decide, really, are we going to hug Europe in regulatory and legal compliance, or are we going to do our own thing and the city can't really decide what it's going to do. 
Well, yes. I mean, in a sense, that is broadly the situation. I mean, up till now, the negotiations have been very much focused on what's called the phase one, which is discussing the issues, Northern Ireland, money, and the status of EU citizens in order to get to phase two, which is the discussion about the framework for trade. And the likelihood is that we will move to that new phase and the British will put down some money. But once we get to that, there never has been a proper discussion within the EU, within the UK cabinet about what the framework will be. And, and the problem is, as you say, that while Mrs May says that she wants to have a, a special, uh, not off the shelf, but bespoke deal, one which goes well beyond the Canada deal signed with the EU, the Europeans are making it very clear that that isn't the case. There isn't going to be some special relationship for the British. They've either got to take Canada, which is effectively third country and a deal on goods, or alternatively EEA, which is basically accepting current situation but without the political superstructure. In other words, freedom of movement and privileged access to the single market. And the basic problem is that in the UK, the binary nature of that choice, first of all, hasn't really sunk into people. I don't think there's an appreciation that this is going, that the British are not going to get their way on this next year. It doesn't look like it. The Europeans have held on the first phase and are likely to hold on the second. And secondly, once that comes through, whether they are actually going to choose which way they're going to go, one or the other. Can I just uh, just leap in here? I don't want to overstate this, but there is a kind of faint, you know, I think I agree with your broad analysis, but I think you have to look at this in the context of the decisions that have been taken by round the table by the 27. And I think that whatever is being said in Brussels at the moment, there is no doubt that there is not a set position for the 27 as to what they will do, actually in the broadest sense, on where they go next, I think. Um, that doesn't mean that I think there is a general view that given the time and the constraints, political constraints, there should be certain sort of plain vanilla type options, whether they Norway, and some people look at it in terms. But, but the question of how many of those options there may be and how much flexibility there may be around those options, I think, is not yet decided. And if you looked at those two broad options, it mm. would be Norway that would obviously protect the city of London the most because it would essentially continue our well, economic model and our structure, whereas Canada... I don't agree with that, actually. I don't think Norway is necessary. I mean, look at it this way. We were in the European Union. We had all the seats at the table. And David Cameron and George Osborne spent a lot of time fussing around saying they wanted a special nuclear button to press if anyone tried to pass any financial legislation. If we were in the EEA, we have to be realistic. We would not be around the table when financial regulation, so whatever came down the pipe, would be for us to implement. Nobody is suggesting that EEA is a good option. I no, mean, I it's clearly just, not a good option at all. Um, it's not a good option. The question is whether it ends up being a better option as the British come to the realisation that Canada and nothing other than Canada is the only alternative. I agree with you that things are not completely set on the European front. I mean, there is uh, a school of thought that says on the first phase, the discussion about the three issues in phase one, the EU has been very united. It will be more difficult for the EU to remain united, the 27 to remain united, as they approach the issue of trade, not only in the framework discussions, but beyond. But even so, at the moment, it does look like that is the choice. But I suppose the problem, James, is that in political terms, the Norway one doesn't really solve anything, because as Jonathan was just saying, it takes the UK from being a rule maker to a rule taker, and it would probably require free movement of people to continue in some form, which is very much against what people voted for. So in political terms, if not economic, Canada does seem the route we're most likely to go down. 
I think you've got to ask yourself, where are we going to be in May, June? Next uh, year. This next year. I think that's the question which I think is more difficult. These issues have not been properly discussed, not only in cabinet, within the British political debate. And I think that as people start to look at what Canada might mean, and there are, there are champions for Canada in the cabinet. There are plenty of people in the Liam cabinet. Fox, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, who basically say, clean break, Britain, Britain, global Britain, etc. There are plenty of champions. But whether they start to be more overt champions for an approach which is more aligned, much more closely aligned to the EU is a question. And whether the question of immigration remains a salient in politics in six months' time as it is now is another question. As people see, for example, that net migration continues to come down is another issue. So I would say certainly at the moment it's hard to judge, but in six months' time things may look different. Jonathan, there's two buzzwords that go around a lot in Westminster about the City of London. One is equivalence and one is passporting. So a nice, crystal clear description. Can you explain what they both mean and why they're important and what the UK might get. Okay, well, passporting, simple. It's not going to exist under any of the scenarios we've discussed. It is a mechanism for members of the EU to transact, makes it easy for them to transact business cross-border so a bank can sell its products from country A to country B. Just it's a mechanism. Under anything other than Norway, it goes... What's equivalence? Equivalence is one thing that people think that could replace it. It's got various forms, but what it effectively means is that two areas, one being the EU, the other being in the UK, look at each other and they say, we are so close to each other in regulation, it makes absolute sense not to disrupt the flows of business between us. We should continue to operate broadly as if we are one entity for these areas of financial business. Is it likely to happen? It's a very good question. I think it is probably, if you look at what we've discussed as the Canada option, it is some form of equivalence is the way in which, if you like, the EU will stop the UK from, quotes, floating off into the mid-Atlantic. And some European countries, notably countries like Luxembourg and Ireland, which see a symbiotic relationship with London as important, would probably be quite keen on that. Because on exit day, our regulatory regimes will be exactly the same. They may yes. diverge over time. But the key problem with equivalence is that at present, through the MIFID II um, things that are coming through next year, yep. is that it only lasts for 30 days. And obviously for the City of London, you need more than 30 days to provide that reassurance for businesses that it's not going to get kibosh and then undermine your ability to sell into yep. the single market. Yeah, well, clearly, look, equivalence is designed. No, well, we have to be you know realistic. Look at... Where equivalence has operated, such as with the United States over derivatives, what you find, of course, is that there are all these sort of technical withdrawals that are in place. They can, it can be yanked. It doesn't get yanked because people see the merits of keeping it going. I agree with you, though, that given the interdependence of Europe and the UK in terms of financial services, it would clearly be desirable from the perspective both of customers and of banks for there to be some sort of agreement which meant that there would be more certainty about the continuation of the operation. Now, that will be one of the issues which I think they will have to debate. And finally, James, this all feeds into where we are in the Brexit negotiations. And a lot of people like Lloyd Blankfein, who's been tweeting a lot about this issue, is wanting certainty because by the time we get to the beginning of 2018, you're really becoming down to the rails to Brexit day. And the city wants to know about transition. Is there going to be a transition on what terms? And we sort of assume it's going to be a standstill transition. Nothing's 
going to change for those two years after 2019. But people want to know what's happening. And I think, what do you think the government could do to say to people, you know, it's going to be okay, we are listening to you and we will do our best to get an equivalence regime and have rules and regulations that mean you can continue your business as much as normal? Well, the short answer is that everything depends on what the outcome is going to be in in the immediate future on the December Council, which is where all these things are going to be discussed. My assumption is that the British are going to make the commitments needed in terms of finance. That's some of the mood music coming through. I don't think that the Europeans will say that we can move to the next phase, phase two, which is the discussion on trade. But I think the important thing is that if the Europeans set out the guidelines for the transition, that will be an important indication to business in the UK and in Europe that the transition is on and that something on that can be agreed in the first couple of months of next year. And at the end of the day, that is important. Now, what form the transition takes, since you asked me about that, that's still somewhat uncertain. Is it just going to be a two-year extension of Article 50, which is pretty much dynamite? Or can you have some kind of arrangement which basically allows the incorporates the acquis into UK law for another two years, temporarily? That's still to be decided. But I think the critical thing is, if you're asking when will business get assurance, the important thing now is that at the European Council, the Europeans say we move to phase two and we set out the guidelines for the transition. And finally, Jonathan, do you think there's much danger to the City of London being upended as the financial centre of Europe and arguably the second most powerful financial centre in the world because people say, actually, you know, the culture, the location, the laws, the skills, they're not going to change even through Brexit. But at the same time, there are clearly still big questions to be answered. I think the city does business all over the world, not just with Europe. Europe is clearly an important piece of why the city is as powerful globally as it is. So there is the scope, in my view, for, if you like, everyone to end up a loser. There is no doubt that, you know, one of underlying Lloyd Blankfein's tweeting this week is the real concern that Goldman Sachs will not make as much money in Europe if, if it has to split up its operations. And he doesn't want that to happen, funnily enough. And none, neither do most of the others. So this, I think, is... Will the city lose it, lose its, its place? It partly comes down to what politicians are able to agree and how flexible they are willing to be. It also depends, though, on businesses not doing things which will preemptively and unnecessarily damage their operations in Europe. And to be honest, we just don't know where that's going to go. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Jonathan, James, George and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 